It's Monday, April 12th, and welcome to the Advocacy Hour. I'm your host, Parker Zedecker, and in today's pilot episode, I'll be explaining to you what we hope to accomplish with this podcast. Additionally, I'll be covering one of the most pressing issues facing Americans, cancer, and more specifically, blood cancer. I'll be interviewing three different people, all with three different perspectives on how their lives have been touched by blood cancer, and how you can raise awareness for blood cancer patients and their families. So let's get to advocating. One of the most awakening statistics I've read in the past few weeks is that every three minutes, an individual is diagnosed with blood cancer. When breaking down the statistic, I found just how likely it is for almost every person to be touched by blood cancer at some point in their life, which reveals just how important it is for us to be aware of what blood cancer is and how it affects those around us. Blood cancer, by definition, is a cancer of blood-forming tissues, hindering the body's ability to fight infection. But scientists, doctors, and patients will tell you that blood cancer is a lot more than just a disease that makes you easily sick. Here to share with us her experience with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is Brooke Cardoza, a survivor of blood cancer, now five years in remission. All right, hello everyone. Uh, today we have Brooke Cardoza with us here on the Advocacy Hour. How are you doing today, Brooke? I'm doing good, thank you. Well, thank you so much for being here with us um, in our discussion today on blood cancer. Um, so just to start off, what is your connection with blood cancer? Um, I was diagnosed with a blood cancer non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in May of 2015. It's the diffuse large B-cell version of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, which is one of the many things I learned after my diagnosis of how many different kinds of blood cancers there are. So you say you have you had cancer. What led you up to the moment of hearing that initial diagnosis from your doctor? Um, well, I just happened to uh, feel a lump one morning when I was getting dressed. And I went to my doctor that same day and they said, this is something that you need to get checked out immediately. So they set, actually set up a mammogram and an ultrasound the very next morning. They took it very seriously, which I was thankful for. Um, in the ultrasound, they could see a mass. So they did a biopsy. And of course, for five days, what went through my head was I have breast cancer because what else would a lump be in that area? And um, when I got the call on May 15th, 2015, uh, my doctor said, you have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, which is very rare to have in your breast, um, but I happened to have it at that location. So they actually set up an appointment with an oncologist that very day. So within 24 hours, I discovered it. I had it tested. Um, I should say I had it tested within 24 hours and Five days later, I got the results and was meeting with an oncologist the, the same day. Yeah, so in that period, you were probably pretty confused and kind of filled with the emotion for that quick of turnaround. I was frozen with fear. I, I did all kinds of research in those five days, not even having my results yet, but I researched breast cancer up and down. I knew everything about it, and then I didn't have that type of cancer, but 
yeah, it was paralyzing fear for five days. So it's days. really that what if moment. Definitely. So when your doctor gave you the call and said the words, you have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, in that moment, what emotions were you feeling? Um, I didn't handle the news very well. It was actually over the phone. I had just pulled into the parking lot at work and I parked the car and she gave me the news and I was, I, I was distraught. Um, you know, everything, only the worst goes through your mind when you hear that. Um, and she, that's really all of the information she had for me at that time. Um, she's an OBGYN, so not an oncologist. She just had the test results. Um, so I was just distraught. I obviously left work right away. Um, I was on the phone with a couple of doctors for the next couple of hours, just getting appointments set up. Um, so it was pretty in a pretty low place um, until I actually went to my oncologist that afternoon. And when I got there, he was going on and on about the diagnosis and what it is and the treatment. And I must have just had a look on my face of fear because he, he actually said, okay, wait, let me stop for a minute. We can get rid of this. We can help you. And then I kind of like, okay, because up until that point, I, I didn't have any good news, really. Um, so when he said that, then I could kind of relax and listen to what he was saying and try to prepare myself uh, for what was going to follow. So you know you said you had your first couple appointments booked within a matter of days, even in the same day for you, um, after you got your initial diagnosis. So what was the turnaround between hearing the diagnosis from your doctor and that initial discussion to when you began uh, treatment for your non-Hodgkin's lymphoma? Yeah, it was very fast. Um, they were, at the time I was 38, my kids were eight and three. So they were, and, it, it, and it's, a, it's a type of cancer that does have a high remission rate for a lot of people. So they were being very aggressive in getting things going. So I had my appointment on the 15th um, with the oncologist. Within a week, I had a PET scan, which told me that it had not spread any further. I had um, a spinal tap to make sure it wasn't in my um, spinal fluid. I had a, a bone marrow biopsy to make sure it wasn't in the bone marrow because those are all things that would affect the type of treatment I would receive. And I also had a second opinion in Madison with the lymphoma specialist at UW Madison. And that was about a week. And then on it was June 4th, I started my um, first chemo session. So it was less than two weeks from diagnosis to all of those additional tests that are needed to stage your cancer, second opinions, and, and getting your treatment started. Because I thought it was very, very fast. I was grateful for that. Yeah, it's good that they were able to catch it. So in your initial chemo treatment, for a lot of people, they don't really understand what the process looks like and how you feel when you are initially getting your first infusion. So for our listeners, could you just kind of lay out um, the process of where you had to go, how the process kind of works, and sort of what you were feeling both physically um, and emotionally when you had to get your first chemo treatment? Yeah, um, I had a little bit of an idea of what to expect. Um, my dad had gone through chemotherapy and a, and a couple of friends, so I had somewhat of an idea. Um, but it's, it's kind of strange to say, but I was actually really eager to start. 
because of the news that my doctor had given me that a, there's a high percentage of a successful treatment, I was very anxious to get started and to see if it was going to work. So um, my first day, I was, I was glad I was there. I was glad we were starting. I was very nervous about the side effects because what you see in the movies and things like that, it's, it's not pretty. So I was um, scared about how I would feel afterwards. So I actually, um, as I say, it's like 48 hours that you would start feeling the effects after your treatment. Um, my husband was working the following weekend and my kids were little. So I set up daycare for my kids so that I could be home by myself in case I became really, really sick. Um, and actually, I mean, knock on what I, my body handled it very, very well. Um, the worst thing was being tired, very tired. I'm, I'm not a person that take naps, but if we had something we were going to be doing, I would try to get a nap in. Um, my doctor had said, there's no reason to be nauseous. We have so many medications available to you to help with this. If this doesn't work, come back and we'll give you something else to try. So the medication I had for nausea worked really, really well. Um, I think probably the worst part was starting to lose my hair. That was a very odd experience and something that nobody had prepared me for just the physical feeling it kind of feels like your scalp is on fire before your hair even starts to fall out and then it would just start coming out in clumps so that was more I guess also mental to prepare with but um, overall I'm, I was very very lucky and I know that about how my body responded physically to the chemotherapy so in addition to the chemotherapy, did you have any other forms of treatment? I know for some cancer patients, they might undergo radiation or some surgeries. So I know you said you had a lump. Did you have to get that surgically removed? You know, I didn't. Lymphoma is a little bit different because it is a blood cancer. Um, they typically don't do surgery. I know some people have their um, spleens removed, I believe. Um, but it's, it's really an odd, a different kind of of cancer, even as far as staging it. Um, you know, it was in, it was, I had multiple tumors in one breast and it was slightly in one of my lymph nodes. And the specialist even said it could be stage two, it could be stage four, just depending on how you look at it. Um, so I didn't have to have any surgery, very thankful for that. I did opt to take a more aggressive approach and um, had methotrexate. Um, it's not a chemo. Um, I don't think it's an immunotherapy. I should, I should know more about what it is. A lot of times it's um, patients with rheumatoid arthritis are treated with it. Um, I had to be in the hospital for four days. And what it does is it, it gets into your, um, breaks the brain barrier and gets into your brain. If lymphoma gets into your brain, it's much harder to treat. And because of my age and because my kids were very young, the doctors agreed that they would do this more aggressive um, treatment in addition to my regular chemotherapy. So I would go to chemo in, in between that one and my next one, I would be in the hospital four days getting methotrexate, then a chemo, methotrexate, chemo, methotrexate, chemo. Um, when I finished my four rounds of chemotherapy, it was a um, cocktail called RCHOP. 
and my methotrexate, I started um, radiation. So I had radiation in that targeted area and I ended up having 15 sessions. Um, so that's Monday through Friday, every single day at the same day. And it takes longer to drive to get radiation than to actually lay on the table and have the treatment perform. But um, I think because it was 15 sessions, I, I didn't have a lot of um, side effects from that as well. I was very, very lucky. So you mentioned your kids a lot. So during this cancer journey, what were your thoughts about your children during this time period um, after your diagnosis and during treatment? Um, well, you know, very initial diagnosis and up till my first treatment, I was, I didn't think I was going to make it. I honest, my only thought was that I, I wasn't going to pull through my, I wouldn't, you know, my kids wouldn't grow up with me as their mother. Um, so it was very, very, very scary. Um, and then once I got into treatment, those feelings kind of went to the side a little bit because I was more optimistic. But then the reality of going through treatment with an eight and three-year-old kind of hit me because it's, you know, being a parent is very tiring. And so to, I, I thought, how am I going to do this? How am I going to be getting chemotherapy and trying to take care of kids? Um, obviously, my husband is there too, but he, he was working. Um, so it was just more fear about how I was going to be able to juggle all of that. Um, and I actually, my plan was to also keep working as much as I could. So the thoughts about had changed from fear about my kids not having a mom into how am I going to be a mom going through treatment? Would you say you are still trying to stay in work and do everything pretty normal to keep a sense of normality in your life with everything that was changing at the time? That's a really good point. And that's exactly why I wanted to keep working because of my kids. I thought if they could see me getting up and doing our same routine, they wouldn't be as scared. Um, the funny thing is, is, well, two kind of funny things. Um, they really were bothered by my hair loss because they were so young. They didn't understand that in the big picture, that's not the hugest deal but they had a really, uh, they had, a, they struggled with that when we were out and about, if I didn't have a wig on and just wore a hat. Um, but the other thing, if I remember somebody asking the kids, how are they doing? How, you know, what, what do you think about all of this that's going on? And my youngest said, we get really good food. And it's because of everybody that brought us meals and, and really helped out in that way. So it's just interesting that those are the two things that thankfully that that's what they remember about the whole thing. So during a cancer journey, there's always going to be those ups and downs. Um, so could you recall it all for our listeners? What was one of those low points and how are you able to overcome it in your cancer journey? Um, I guess the low points are waiting. It was waiting for those test results. Like after you start treatment and then you are going to have another PET scan to see if the treatment's working. That was really, again, one of those moments where I was kind of frozen with anxiety and then starting to think, what if it's not working? Then what am I going to do? What if I'm out of options? Um, so 
how I got through that was just trying to keep busy and trying to think, don't worry about it until you have to worry about it. So that's how I was trying to get through some of those lower points during treatment. So during anyone's cancer journey, it's always super confusing, especially for someone like you who had a whole bunch of other things you had to juggle. What was able to keep you hopeful um, and optimistic in a time where everything was so much confusing and you probably had a lot of negativity um, mm -hmm. going on in your life while being a cancer patient? There were actually a couple of things. Before I even started treatment, I was talking to a friend of mine that also had had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, he had a different kind, um, Burkitt's, and it was about 15 years earlier. But he said to me, you're going to be fine. They have a, a immunotherapy drug called Rituxan, and it skyrocketed remission rates. And it came out right before he had started his treatment. And that was one of the um, drugs that I received, an immunotherapy drug, along with my chemo. And um, so that kind of kept me going that like, okay, research and, and new advancements are, are happening all the time. And that was one of them and I was getting it. So I was, that kept me optimistic. And also my first PET scan after one treatment of chemotherapy, not only could I no longer feel the tumor, um, the tumors were gone after just one session of chemotherapy. So that kept me going too. Although it was kind of like, oh my gosh, I still have all this chemotherapy to do, but yet I don't have any evidence of disease. Um, you know, that's a bummer that I have to keep doing it, but I knew that it was working and that's what kept me going. So on what date were you told that you were cancer-free and on that date, what were the emotions and feelings that were going through your mind? So I was never one of the patients that could wait, like you would get a scan and then you would wait a few days and meet with your doctor and they would give you the results. And I just wasn't that patient. I got my scan and by the afternoon I was calling for the results. So on October 31st, I had my last scan of 2015 and I knew that it looked good. But then I met with my oncologist on November 2nd, 2015, and he said, everything looks good. I don't see anything. And then he was kind of wrapping up the appointment. And I said, well, does this mean that I'm in remission? Because he never said that word. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, you're in remission. I thought, oh, okay, this is great. So it was very, very exciting. We were celebrated that night with, with my family. And um, yeah, it was just very exciting news to hear. So now in 2021, being five years in remission, looking back on your cancer journey, what was one thing that you were grateful to learn or be able to participate in while you were having that time in your life? Um, you know, what I, I think one of the largest things was just what I learned about research and all the advancements that were happening. And then what I had learned towards the end of my treatment is the existence of Leukemia Lymphoma Society. I honestly hadn't known about it um, before or during my treatment. And I think that knowing that that organization dedicated to blood cancers existed um, was really a highlight of, of what I had gone through besides coming through it and, and being healthy as just knowing that there's these 
other resource out there and they're truly helping provide funding for the research that's needed and research that helped develop treatments that helped me. LLS does put on a lot of events every single year. Um, during COVID, they haven't been able to put any on um, in person. They'd have some virtual ones. Um, but pre-COVID, were you able to participate in any of the events that the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society was able to offer? I did. So I participated in the Light the Night um, in 2015. I actually wasn't even, I was at the end of my treatment at that time. So that was, that was very um, motivating to be, I hadn't been around so many survivors and um, current patients. Um, so that was really inspirational. And um, also I had a huge group of friends and family that came to support me. Um, so I had done Light the Night for a few years after my um, diagnosis. So looking back on a typical chemo experience, you're usually um, in a room with other people. So during that time, um, do you keep in touch with any of the people that you talk to while you're getting your chemo treatments? Um, that's interesting. Uh, no, I don't. I, I do run into one woman every once in a while. Now, I was fortunate I only had four sessions, but I was also there all day from when they opened till being the last patient to leave because it was just the length. So a lot of people came and went while I was sitting in the chair for eight hours. Um, you know, that was one of the hardest parts is that after treatment, reading obituaries of people that I had met, um, that I had talked to and kind of heard their story with all different kinds of cancers that they were going through. So uh, there were a couple and that was really hard, but then I would run in, like I said, I would run into um, another woman every once in a while, just out and about shopping, or if I was at the cancer center for an appointment, she was coming in for her chemotherapy, but um, that's been quite a few years now. For someone who is getting recently diagnosed or the people who have yet to be diagnosed with blood cancer or any form of cancer for a matter of fact, what would be your advice to them? Uh, I, my advice would be do not spend too much time on the internet and don't pay too much attention to statistics because a lot of times the information out there is not up to date and it's changing all of the time and every single person is unique and will have a different experience. So if you're looking for education, I would reach out to more reliable or up-to-date sources like your medical team, or if it's a blood can cancer, um, leukemia lymphoma society, but to really have conversations about it versus looking up um, numbers and stats. Yeah, well, you have had a really meaningful story to tell all of our listeners today, and it's great to hear that in light of all that confusion and chaos that you were able to stay hopeful. Um, and congratulations on being five years in remission. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us here today on the Advocacy Hour, Brooke. Thank you. It's truly amazing to look at all the medical advancements that have occurred in recent years that have allowed for remission rates to exponentially increase. It is these medical advancements that assisted Brooke in her battle against blood cancer. And while Brooke's story reveals the chaotic and confusing nature of her battle with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and what blood cancer treatment is like, she is just one of the one million 
297,027 individuals in the United States who are presently living with or are in remission for blood cancer, and this is not accounting for all those who have yet to be diagnosed with blood cancer. After talking to multiple families and survivors of blood cancer, a phrase that I've heard consistently is that every day is a gift, which is why it is also important to acknowledge that not everyone with blood cancer is able to beat it. Here to talk to us about the blood cancer experience is Kat Radka, who lost her former husband Kurt to leukemia. All right, so what is your story with blood cancer? Um, I was first introduced with uh, leukemia back in 2009 when my late husband uh, became ill. He had uh, symptoms that were similar to like a mono, um, tired, aching, and we really kind of weren't sure what was going on, went to the doctor, and as you know, leukemia is a blood cancer, so it can be detected in a simple blood test, CBC, complete blood count. And um, it was kind of a interesting, he went to the doctor, came home, and you knew it was bad because the actual doctor gave us a call back, not the nurse, not the front desk, the doctor called us and said, you need to head up to the hospital, you have leukemia. So at that time, you know, we're grown adults in our thirties, but the word leukemia just doesn't resonate. You're not really sure what it is. If it's a childhood cancer, this is cancer. What exactly is this? So I think a lot of people are confused by the term and such. So we kind of just were just in the state of shock and confusion heading up to the hospital and meeting with the oncologists and just learning about what was happening inside his body and what, what we were about to go through. But at the same time, you probably hear half of it, right? You don't really understand what they're talking about and you're just really not sure. You want to go online and Google everything and that's probably not the best thing to do. It's a horrible thing to do because you really, um, it's so specified. It's so um, driven through, you know, testing and, and, your, and your DNA and it's really specific per person. And so it's really important that you don't go <clears throat> and Google it. Um, but it was it was just shocking. I mean, I think you're just kind of in a state of shock at that point and you really have no clue what to do, right? Because there's a lot of cases where people survive and live and, and go through remission and, and bounce back. And then there's obviously some that, that don't make it due to this horrible blood cancer, but very confusing. <laughs> yeah. So in those moments, when did it really like hit you that you guys had your life had changed that you guys had to start going to go get treatments for everything? Like how what was the turnaround from when you heard Kurt's diagnosis to when you guys had to start getting treatment for everything? His treatment was instantaneous that night we were taken in and he had to receive a lot of different treatments because your body just goes through a lot of different things. And so treatment was immediate. And as a mom, I'm, I've got kids at home and I have no idea what's to do. And I don't want to leave my husband and you don't want to leave your loved ones and you want to go back to your kids. And you're just like, I, I don't, I, I don't know what is going on. And so you're really in a state of confusion, just a state of shock. And, um, you know, the hospital tries to help you with social workers and nurses and things like that. But Gosh, it would have been really nice to have someone that possibly um, 
could have just picked up the phone or came to the hospital and said, honey, I know what you're going through. I got you. Let me help you a little bit. Let me give you a little bit of advice because there really isn't that person. So um, that was hard because I had no idea what to do, right? Um, I just kind of went home and <clears throat> wrote down a hundred questions and came back the next day and met with the doctors and they do a pretty good job, but you know, they have to really be cautious of what they tell you and what the future is because you just don't know. Every day is a gift. So as a mother in the time when this happened, how did you explain this to your young children at home? What was the conversation there? I just told him that he was sick and that we really had to work hard to make him better. And we really didn't know what medicine was gonna work. We didn't know what treatments were going to work, but we had to try everything and we had to make sure that we were going to, we were going to fight this and we were going to one day at a time. That was our slogan um, that we used one day at a time. He was, his blood type was B positive. So we always said be positive and have one day at a time. So, um, you know, my kids were little three and five when he was diagnosed. And so I found really quickly as a parent that if you're positive, they're positive. If you all cry all the time, they cry all the time. If you're negative and crabby, they're negative and crabby. And so they kind of take on whatever mood you're in. And as hard as it is as a parent to, um, you know, you want to go in a corner and break down, the more you can be their vice, their, their positive role model, it really makes it a lot easier to get through one day at a time. So when you were doing everything, what was one thing personally for you that you were able to just hold on to to continuously keep you hopeful? in a time where so much was confusing and changing all the time. Yeah, you know, family was great and they were really here for us a lot. And um, I would say we were really kind of infants in our faith. Um, we had started exploring our churches and our pastors, but really it was just this slap in the face, eye-opening to our faith. And um, it allowed us to just take time and pray and just give it to him and just have him help us in our hearts. Um, the physical needs are met by the million families and friends that we had. I mean, mowing lawns and meals and everything you could physically need, I really feel like gets taken care of. But I, I do believe that there is a gap of, of, of your faith, of your spiritual needs that sometimes need to really kind of help you to keep you going strong, right? Yeah. So now that Kurt is sadly no longer with us, what would you say his legacy is in regards to his passions and his hope that so resonates with you and your children today? Yeah. So, you know, the, the biggest thing for me was his faith. I, I mean, as much as he was poked and prodded and the procedures and the really, really bad, bad days. I mean, and, and just all that he went through, he always had a smile on his face. He was always in a good mood, always really um, <clears throat> took one day at a time and really took little bites of it. But one little story that resonates really strongly with me, and I tell my kids this, and I hope for future generations, people can learn this as we, one day we were sitting down with our pastor and he was a new pastor and he wasn't aware of our situation. And he was kind of in an awkward state and he really didn't know what to say. He wanted to say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You know, you're sick. I'm so sorry to hear about this. And Kurt just looked at him and said, I'm not. And I kind of looked at him and I was taken back by that statement. And I wasn't really sure where he was going with this. And he said, um, if I didn't, wouldn't have gotten sick, I wouldn't have found the Lord. 
And to me, that was just like the most impacting statement he could have ever said in his whole life because he took that as a positive where 90% of us would take cancer and dying as obviously I got shortchanged. He was young when he passed away. So he really had such a legacy to live up to. I mean, that's just such a powerful statement and something that keeps me motivated sometimes when I am having a pity party day and just not feeling it. I am reminded that um, sometimes we need big things in our lives to happen to really find our true inner, inner faith. Well, that is a meaningful story. Definitely something <laughs> astounding to say, I am not scared, kind of going into that where you're living life every day to the fullest and realizing that not letting what's happening to you stop you. To the families whose loved ones have recently been diagnosed with a form of blood cancer, any type of cancer, as someone who's gone through this experience um, for multiple years previously, what would be your advice to them? I think really, I mean, it kind of goes back to our slogan, take one day at a time. If you start looking too far into the future and you start overanalyzing everything, you just will cause yourself more heartache. Um, I think being able to really take in what you can, handle what you personally can and let other people help you. Um, everyone wants to help. And um, some people are humble and some people don't want, are embarrassed and they don't want anything. And people in that time, that's their way of helping and that's their way of healing and grieving as well as it let them help as much as you want to feel like you can do it all on your own. I think it's important to just open your arms and let people come in and embrace you a little bit. Well, those are some meaningful words. <laughs> Thank you for meeting with me today. It means a lot that you were able to tell your story um, it means a lot to the people who are just going through this now or aren't aware that there's a whole another network of people um, around the world who are suffering in a way that they can't even understand. But that in light of it, people like you are able to stay hopeful in light of it all and that your advice to them can be so meaningful, um, sort of like a pinnacle for where they can head to stay positive in those negative situations. Yeah, I mean, I wish to say that hopefully, you know, someday leukemia and and all the blood cancers are, are cured. And, you know, thanks to the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, we're able to earn, you know, gain some, some strides in research, but, you know, lean on them. They're a great society. They're great. We use them often for support and resources. Um, but it's just really, you know, let's just hope that we can abolish this and, <laughs> and yeah. no longer have it, but I don't know if that's easier said than done. Yeah. So I appreciate you, you taking the time. Yeah. Did you ever participate in any of like the events to Leukemia Lymphoma Society? Did. Yeah, we did a lot of um, walk, light the nights, they call them. Mm -hmm. um, a couple at Lambeau Field we did. And um, so those were interesting and nice and really for the kids and to see that there are a lot of other people that are impacted just like way we were because you don't see that in the hospitals, right? You know, they're, they're much more secular. So um, it was, yeah, it's a great support system. Such inspiring words that in light of so much confusion and pain that hope can prevail. But with those inspiring words also comes the need for reflection on the lives that have been lost to blood cancer. So please, take a moment of silence and remembrance of all those who have lost their lives not just to blood cancer, but cancer as a whole.
thank you for taking a moment to remember those whose life have been cut short by blood cancer. While the reality of death is disheartening, there is hope. Because the team of researchers, organizers, and volunteers at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society are working endlessly to find a cure for blood cancer so that not one more person has to lose a loved one to blood cancer. For today, we are meeting with Christina Nielsen from the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society National Office. Hello, Christina. How are you doing today? Hi, Parker. Thanks so much for having me. I'm doing well. Well, I'm super excited to hear from you today and kind of give our listeners sort of a perspective um, from what it means to be um, from the inside of LLS and what you guys do. So let's get straight on into the questioning. Um, first off, what exactly is the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society? Sure. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is the largest nonprofit dedicated to creating a world without blood cancers. So LLS here to help support research, um, but until then, we're also here to help support patients and their families with education and services and help to improve their lives through advocating for legislation to also increase access to quality care. Yeah, so what do you personally do at LLS in terms of your job and what daily tasks you carry out every single day? Sure. So I am the patient and community outreach manager for the Upper Plains Territory with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. So our four state area is Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Wisconsin. And my job within LLS is to help connect families to um, LS services and help facilitate programs and services and help to do follow-up um, and provide resources and additional support. So in your present position, what do you find most meaningful about the opportunities that you're given every day to improve the lives of patients? Sure. Um, so I, I really think that um, it's, it's just so inspiring to be a part of such an organization that is on the verge of such groundbreaking uh, cancer research. Um, you know, I'm inspired by the courage of our families. Every day, um, I make calls to help connect patients to, uh, to services and to programs. And I'm just constantly in awe of their strength and perseverance. And um, like I said, there's so much hope right now with being a part of LLS. Um, it's never a good time to be diagnosed with cancer, but there has really never been more hope right now um, to see a world without blood cancer. They say that um, you know more treatments have been approved in the last five years than the previous 50 combined. And so um, every day it seems to get a little bit closer to that mission. Yeah, that's absolutely amazing. So you hold quite a meaningful position at LS and you do some great work, but what brought you to the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society? Sure. Um, my education background is in counseling psychology, so I've always loved just working with people. Um, I have been working with nonprofit organizations for almost 10 years, and um, in that time, LLS has been just such a wonderful organization to work for. Um, the LLS mission, like I said, is such a powerful one. We're here to help patients and families um, while they're you know, battling for their lives, and it's really um, what brought me to LLS. What inspires you about your daily work and to continue on, even in some instances where hope might seem a little less prevalent in terms of, especially right now during a pandemic, where um, in addition to providing care for patients, you, uh, you also have to provide them care uh, to protect, protect them from the present pandemic that's going on? Uh, like I said, I'm just always in awe of our family's resilience. Um, it seems like no matter what these families go through, um, they're some of the nicest people in the world. And it's also a little bit devastating. The people that you talk to every day that are battling for their lives are some of the sweetest, warmest people. And, um, you know, they're just trying to make ends meet while they're, um, 
you know, going through chemo treatments and trying to battle insurance coverage. And they're so thankful for even, um, you know, the little support that we're able to provide in the end, um, end of the day, you know, we might be able to help out with a $500 stipend for travel assistance. And they are so endlessly great, even for that. And it just gives me such courage that, um, you know, in the midst of everything, in the midst of this pandemic, these families are still so positive and so thankful for what they're, what they're given. Yeah. So out of all the patients that you've ever worked with, is there any stories or personal stories that stick out to you as like such an astounding um, feat that they've had to overcome? Oh my goodness, there are so many. And I don't want to reveal any, um, you know, personal information because I haven't, I haven't talked to any of these people to, to tell their story on the air. But, um, you know, there are, there are so many families that have lost um, little ones. And those ones are really the ones that um, strike my heart the most. Uh, recently, we were trying to find a family um, to benefit from some fundraising efforts that a local fraternity had done. And um, it, it was hard because um, every family that we could think of, we would go to try to contact them and find out that um, that little one had passed away. And these are these are kids and, you know, um, nine nine years old, seven years old, um, found out that they had lost their battle to cancer. And so every day that just urges me forward and, and spurs my efforts even more because I know that um, tomorrow it could be um, somebody in my family. And I, I want to see the day that we can um, end blood cancers for all yeah. families. That's absolutely amazing. It's truly disheartening to see that young children are having sadly to pass away, but not just young children, but everyone. But focusing more specifically on those younger one, could you tell me a little bit more about the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society's Children Initiative? Sure. So the LLS Children's Initiative is a um, one-of-a-kind um, effort within the uh, pediatric cancer community where we're um, funding over $10 million in research towards uh pediatric research. And we're also um, launching a one-of-a-kind pediatric um, clinical trial where um, we're working with uh, all the different cancer institutions uh, throughout the U.S. to um, pull together our resources and our knowledge about pediatric uh, blood cancers so that we can help to um, find more treatments. Um, recently, LS has realized that, um, you know, pediatric uh, treatments have been the same over the past, you know, 10 years while you see adult treatments, um, you know, finding new and innovative ways to treat uh, adults. Um, we don't see that uh, fast paced research as much with children and we know that we could help to um, improve treatments and eliminate side effects um, by, by funneling our efforts towards this initiative. So um, we're, we're hoping to see more about um, PEDAL, it's called Pediatric um, Acute Leukemia clinical trial more in the summer once it once it formally launches and hopefully have some wonderful results in the coming years. Yeah, well, we'll keep our viewers updated, our listeners updated, and hopefully they can tune in and see some of the astounding work and the groundbreaking um, research that you guys are going to be able to provide with this clinical trial. And hopefully it changes the lives drastically of those children and families that are affected by childhood blood cancer. Um, so do you have any like personal relationships with blood cancer? Like, have you had anyone that you've known personally, um, that has been diagnosed at all? Um, you know, personally, when I started with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, I did not have a connection to blood cancer. Um, like I said, my work has been in nonprofits for almost 10 years, and I really just loved working with nonprofits and LLS was a wonderful organization to work for. Um, but as I've 
began working with LLS, um, the statistic is that every three minutes, a person in the US is diagnosed with a blood cancer. And since I started, it seems like people have come out of work in my life. Um, and I've been finding people in my life and my community more and more that have been impacted by a blood cancer. Recently, uh, a friend confided in me that his mom was just diagnosed with leukemia and was asking for support. Um, about a month ago, a coworker of my father's was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and he was asking how to connect her to the local chapter. Um, and so it seems like, you know, once you're connected to the blood cancer community, people start to look to you for support, and you start to realize how many people out there are really impacted. Um, you know, every three minutes somebody is diagnosed and the next three minutes, it could be somebody in our lives. Yeah, I think that's truly a revealing statistic that every three minutes, if you think about that, that could be someone sitting right next to you in a classroom or at work. And it really just provides evidence to how everyone's life is touched by blood cancer in one way or another and really um, provides reasoning why the Leukemia Lymphoma Society's efforts um, for patient care, advocacy, awareness, and providing a future where blood cancer is non-existent is so important. Um, focusing a little bit more on those awareness and advocacy aspects, why is awareness and advocacy important for blood cancer? Absolutely. It is extremely important to raise awareness of blood cancer so that we can help to end blood cancers um, in our lifetime. Um, we are here to end blood cancer, but then, like I said, it's almost 1.4 million people in the US are struggling to make ends meet right now. They're diagnosed with a blood cancer, living with a blood cancer, struggling to make ends meet. And so signing up to become an advocate, you can help to improve access to quality treatments, improve access to insurance coverage for these families, and accelerate new, new cures for blood cancer so that we can see more people in remission um, without any relapses. So absolutely, it's it's incredibly important. Yeah, that's kind of contributes to why the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society's work is so important because it really um, benefits everyone, not even those who are not diagnosed, but those who have yet to be diagnosed um, in the future. Because if we can develop a world without cancer, then those uh, people who have yet to be diagnosed as lives can be um, fundamentally changed for the better, which is increasingly important. Um, to some of our listeners today who want to become advocates for blood cancer, how exactly can they do that? Absolutely. So there's lots of things that you can do to help support LLS and to help advocate. Um, the first I want to mention is upcoming October 14th, and that is our Madison Light the Night. Um, at, uh, Light the Night is our annual fundraising efforts to help um, raise money for research and help cancer in our community. And so you can help by signing up, go to LLS.org um, to our Light the Night uh, page to find out more information, or you can go to lightthenight.org slash UPLN to find all the upper planes like the nights in your community. Um, so it's, it's really important. Fundraising is not for everybody, but if you are not um, able to fundraise yourself, please help to promote the event. Um, it's, a, it's a hard reality, but um, research takes time and money, and it will take less time with more money. So, um, we absolutely all need to pull together, pool our resources to help end blood cancer in our lifetimes. Yeah, so um, I know. Oh, sorry. Did you want to have something else to say? Oh, that's okay. I have a few other ways that um, families can get involved if they if they would like to uh, contribute to their community. Um, another way is that you can 
uh, volunteer with LLS. Uh, we always have opportunities in our community for our families to give back. So if you would like to volunteer at an event or help to reach families in your community by doing um, follow-up calls, patient family outreach volunteer, you can certainly also volunteer and reach out to me, Christina, at christina.nielsen at LLS.org. And then finally, our our advocacy efforts online. We have over 50,000 um, active online advocates right now, but we absolutely could use more 50,000 comparatively to the entire US population. Uh, we could certainly use all the advocates we could get. So absolutely, you could sign up to become an advocate and you can do that at ls.org advocacy. Or you can also text SPEAK, S-P-E-A-K to 69866 to join the mobile advocacy network. And again, that's 69866 um, and text SPEAK. Um, and that will absolutely get you up to date information about what we're advocating for currently. Um, recently, it was to help further action in different states to increase access to oral parity, which is um, essentially uh, oral cancer treatments versus infusion cancer treatments, which allows patients to um, receive their treatment at home versus having to go to an infusion center. And especially in the midst of a pandemic like COVID, that was essential um, this past year for families to be able to take their cancer treatments in the safety of their own home versus going to an infusion center. So. Um, things that like that on a day-to-day -day basis you can sign up to become an advocate for and help to improve access to quality uh, treatments and effective care yeah so the whole name of this podcast is the advocacy hour which truly um to all of our listeners today truly being an advocate for different things um today's topic is blood cancer so it affects so many americans but not just americans affects millions worldwide which is why it's important um that we as a community support the leukemia lymphoma society um, in their efforts. Um, going back on something you talked about a little bit before, the Light the Night Walk. I know I have personally participated, um, but for our listeners who haven't, could you just provide us a little bit of insight on exactly what Light the Night is? Absolutely. So Light the Night, like I said, is our community awareness event. Um, and we have currently um, five different Light the Nights in our, in our four state area. And so certainly you can um, sign up to, to uh, build a team and uh, raise funds in honor of somebody in your life or just as a community awareness team um, to help raise funds for research. Um, this is also a really wonderful awareness event and a survivorship event for those that are impacted by a blood cancer. Um, there are some wonderful benefits to being a part of this program if you are a survivor. It can be a, a wonderful way to help build your own personal support network, involve your friends and family in your cancer journey, and celebrate survivorship. Maybe you're in remission, and this is a really great way to celebrate that. Um, we have a survivorship uh, ceremony where all of our survivors will come together and raise their lantern to help light the night. Uh, to bring light to the darkness of cancer. Um, and we, we absolutely need our community there to support us. So um, sign up to become uh, a team or to join a team. Like I mentioned, you can go to lightthenight.org slash UPLN. And that, is, that brings you to all of our Upper Plains um, Light the Night event. Yeah, I know uh, the light that I personally do is the one right here in the Fox Cities, um, at the Fox City Stadium. And I wouldn't like the most um memories that stands out in my mind with just when everyone turns on their lanterns when the stadium gets dark and everyone turns it on and you just see this glowing emblem of pride and unity um uh, within a community and for me it was just super revealing to see that so many people um lives have been touched by blood cancer but that they're all able to come together 
um, naturally was able to reveal to me the work of LLS when I first did it um, at the age of seven. Um, and that's why I'm so passionate about the work of LLS today. To the person who's sitting at home right now listening, what is a piece of advice that you could give for them, um, in addition to the resources we mentioned them before, just to become involved um, and to promote advocacy and awareness in their community, um, even without the resources of LLS? So I, I love that question. I think that's a great question because I think there are so many well-meaning people out there that don't know what to do or don't know how to begin to help. And I think that my best advice for anybody that's sitting at home right now is to take one step, one step today. Don't procrastinate. Don't say you'll do it tomorrow. Um, take one step today to sign up to become an advocate. Um, that way you'll get those alerts in real time and uh, taking action won't seem so scary won't seem like such a big deal if you sign up to become an advocate you'll get a step-by-step -step instructions with how to advocate in your community um, it'll give you an email that's already populated with that information and uh, a place to go to find um, where to send it um, it really does all of the work for you and allows it to become very easy uh, to be an advocate for blood cancers so um my best advice, don't procrastinate, take one step, do it today, do it right after you listen to this podcast, um, pull it up on your phone right now, text speak 69866 to join the Mobile Advocacy Network, and um, you'll be clued in right away to all of the things that are going on with advocacy right now. Well, all our listeners today, you heard it from Christina. It's absolutely super easy for all of you to go out um, and make a difference in your community. So as she said, take one step today. Don't procrastinate. Don't wait. Go out and make a change for the lives of blood cancer survivors, for those that have been lost, and then those who have yet to be diagnosed in all their networks um, that are in their community with them. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Advocacy Hour, Christina. Um, and thanks for revealing such an astounding um truly revealing the astounding work of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Thank you, Parker. Advocacy and awareness, the most important factors in going out and making a difference, a lasting difference in the world around you. To become involved as an advocate for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, text SPEAK to 69866. Again, that is SPEAK Six nine eight six six. A special thank you to Brooke Cardoza, Kat Radka, and Christina Nielsen for taking time out of their busy day to discuss blood cancer and its impact on their lives. To learn more about the amazing work of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, you can do so by going to LLS.org. Go out and be the change you want to see in the world. Thanks for advocating with us today on the Advocacy Hour. See you next time.